Let's indeed continue worshiping and let's go together to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And in just a few moments, we're going to read together verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're still in our series that God is great, looking at the attributes of God. And today we're going to take on this glorious truth that God is a God who speaks. It's been a number of years ago now at a funeral, at a funeral home, I was sitting there behind the pulpit waiting for my turn to bring a message of comfort from the Bible. But typically at funerals, there are those who are doing eulogies before my time to talk. And I think I've told you before, a lot of unusual things are said during eulogies. It's not all true what people say. A lot of people don't know Christ, of course, or they haven't read the Bible. And so they'll say some unusual things. And I've reminded myself through the years, it's not a debate. Don't get up after You've heard something strange, you get up and correct that. But then there was this one funeral where the young man said in his eulogy for his friend, he said, you know, it's too bad life did not come with an instruction manual. Although I got to say something to that one. And so not as a corrective, I hope I shared it as good news. Like, so when I got up and talked, you know, it is good news. Actually, life did come with an instruction manual. God has spoken. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, that God has indeed spoken. Our God, aren't you glad, has not been silent he did not make us and then just absolute silence, no guidance, no direction. Our God didn't do that. God speaks. So we've been looking at these wonderful attributes, everything about him so good, indeed great. And isn't it great that God speaks? Our God communicates and he always has. We talked last week about our God as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there has never been a time when the Father, Son, and the Spirit did not exist together in perfect unity, there's been love expressed between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity past. And there's been communication going on between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And then when God created man, God continued to communicate. Now he's communicating with human beings. So praise God, he communicates. The problem is, do we listen when he communicates? The problem is, do we want to obey what God has communicated? You know, many people wish God had not spoken. And of course, many more live as if God has not spoken, but indeed he has. There in the garden, we find God speaking to Adam and Eve. Throughout the old covenant, we hear the prophet saying, thus says the Lord. We're even told that the creation itself, God speaks through that. Psalm 19 says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands and day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. But the ultimate communication of God to us is through his son, Jesus. And Hebrews chapter one talks about that. This is the ultimate that God would come to us and speak to us. But aren't you glad that God continues to speak to us through his very word? And that truth is huge, that God speaks through his word. This is life altering. When you know that God has spoken through his word, really life becomes much simpler. It might get more difficult because heeding his word puts you countercultural in these days, but, but it does simplify things. So name the issue of the day. Our question as disciples is this, what has God said about that topic? Because God has spoken. And once we know what God has said, life gets simple. All right, that's what I will embrace. I will align everything else about my life in line with what God has spoken. So you and I don't have to try to figure it out. Certainly we don't have to go to the culture and say, culture, please tell us what's true this year. You said some other things were true five years ago to contradict what you're saying is true this year. So we don't have to chase the culture and please tell us, oh, culture was true. God has spoken. Aren't you glad? 
And God has spoken through his word, the Bible. And that's what we're going to focus on. Here's our text, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. God speaks. He speaks through his word, the Bible. Here's a question. Why do we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Why do, why do we believe it's God's word? And it is that what it says, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. That little phrase, inspired by God, translates one Greek word, theonoustos. Theonoustos, God breathed. So a literal translation, all scripture is God breathed. That is quite a statement about the Bible. And of course, as Paul writes this, he's writing Timothy, and he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, if you look at verse 15, he's just been talking to Timothy about the scriptures that his mother and grandmother taught him, have made him wise unto salvation. And now he makes this grand claim about the word of God that it's God breathed. But that doesn't just apply to the Old Testament scriptures. We know it also applies to the New Testament. Do you know that early on in the early church, as the scriptures are being written by people like Paul, Peter and the others are already recognizing this is the word of God on par with the Old Covenant. It's stunning. Listen to 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. Peter writes, Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, listen to this, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. And so Peter's able to say, listen, Paul's writing some things. Some unstable people try to distort what he writes like they do the rest of the scriptures. Paul's writings already understood in the first century. This is the word of God. Somebody might ask, well, how can that be? How can the words of men also be the words of God? And this brings us to the process of inspiration. So how did this work? Well, this is a work of the Holy Spirit. We talked last time, again, our God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the inspiration of our Bible is a work of the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Jesus even told his disciples, I'm going to ascend to heaven. I'm going to send the spirit to you. And he's going to teach you and remind you of everything I've taught you. John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit orchestrated and inspired the writing and the collections of the books of our Bible. These 66 books that make up our scriptures. God used... 40 men over the process of 1,500 years, primarily in Hebrew in the Old Testament, primarily in Greek in the New Testament, and yet there's one grand theme that points to our Savior, Jesus. So when it comes to the Bible that you hold on your lap or that you're looking at on your device, what is it that you're holding? These are God-breathed words. This is divinely inspired. So when we speak about the Bible being inspired, this is a unique claim. The Bible's uniquely inspired. When a singer tells you, oh, I, I was inspired to write this song, they don't mean what the Bible claims for itself. 
They're just saying, God, God, help me if they're a Christian artist. Or even a pastor, when he says, I really feel like God gave me this message for this morning. He's not saying, though, that this is on, the, on par with the scriptures. The, the word of God uniquely inspired to where these are the words of men, but at the same time, these are the very words of God exactly as he wanted it to be. Now, notice the claim here as well, that it's a comprehensive claim. All scripture is inspired by God, or all scripture is God-breathed. So when you look at your Bible, it would be a mistake if you said, well, some parts of it are more inspired than other parts of it. That would be wrong thinking. So if you happen to have a Bible that has red letters in it, so some, some modern Bibles have the words of Jesus in red letters, don't make the mistake of going, now those are super inspired and the rest not so much. I've even heard people through the years, well, I, I go by the red letters. No, that's, that's an error. The same Holy Spirit who inspired Matthew or John to write the words of Jesus as the Spirit brought to remembrance those things is the same Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write or Moses to write or Jeremiah to write. There's, there's no dichotomy. There's no, there's no disagreement going on within the Bible. It's all inspired of God. So the Song of Solomon is just as inspired as the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis is just as inspired as the book of Matthew. Now it's true on an emotional level, some parts of the Bible might inspire you more than others, but that's a different word. That's a different meaning of the word. So some things you read, you think, well, that was exciting. And then some things you read in the inspired word of God, you're like, well, that, that wasn't so exciting. So you come to your daily Bible reading to a genealogical passage and who was the son of whom, who was the son of whom, and who's the son of whom. And that doesn't just fire you up for the day. I had more fun when I was reading in the Psalms, you know, what is this? But it's equally inspired. God has that in his word for you for a different purpose. Not everything is in there to thrill us, but we're being taught. One of the things that does for us when we come to those historical passages, we're reminded that this is not a book of fiction. We're being told these things happen in real time to real people. And God was at work even in that. So, so we come to the scriptures, different purposes for different parts of the Bible, but all inspired of God. Now, is there evidence for such a claim? that the Bible is a supernaturally given book. Absolutely. One of the places we can go for evidence of inspiration is fulfilled prophecies. How do we explain the many, many things that God said centuries ahead that came to, pass, came to pass precisely as he said they would? And just for the sake of time, why don't we just zero in to the book of Isaiah? The prophet Isaiah said some uncanny things, amazing things, well in advance of when Jesus came about Jesus. So in Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, these are passages we often look at at Christmas time, fulfilled in Jesus centuries later. But staying in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53 talks about the redemption where Jesus died for us. 700 years before there was such a thing as crucifixion, we read about this, that someone's going to be pierced through for our transgressions, Isaiah 53. Listen, evidence that this is supernatural, this is the very word of God. We could also turn to archaeological and historical evidences. Do you know that every year in the Middle East, archaeologists are at work unearthing things that over and over again corroborate or show the trustworthiness of the Bible you hold in your hands? It's not working the other way to where they're finding things going, wow, that, that really undercuts the Bible. It's always going in the other way. Look at that. So the places that the Bible affirms, they are historical places. In fact, you can travel to these places even now in the Middle East. There have been times when skeptics have been proven wrong over and over again. There was a time when, when the, the secular scholars would say, well, only the Bible talks about the Hittites. 
That's the only mention of the Bible. It must be fiction. And then, just given enough time, archaeologists dug up a Hittite library. And so, okay, well, the Hittites there, they did indeed exist. And so there is, there's evidence. Another thing we could point to is textual evidence that there are thousands of manuscripts and parts of manuscripts. And when you put them together, we don't find that there's some weird divergence between these texts. We find that they line up, that what we have in our Bibles is indeed accurate. It's the Word of God. Another thing we could turn to for evidence of this being a supernatural book is millions of changed lives. In fact, including your life, if you're here and you're born again, God, His Word, still changing you. So the Bible is indeed inspired. It's God-breathed, meaning it's accurate. And it doesn't have any error in it. This brings us to that theological term we use when we speak of the inerrancy of Scripture, meaning it does not err. One definition of inerrancy is this. The idea that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. It does not err. Or how about this one? The infallibility of Scripture. These are closely related, and we believe this as well. The idea that Scripture is not able to lead us astray in matters of faith and practice. So what we hold is the Word of God, and what we hold is reliable to us. We can build our lives on it. Listen, this is not at all like my present GPS. So on my phone, I have a GPS app, and I've loved it. It has never led me astray until this week. And that messes with you when, when what has been reliable is now long, no longer totally reliable. So now I can say of my GPS app that I prefer, I can say it's, it's normally trustworthy. I can largely trust it. It's mostly trustworthy to me. Because this week it had me running in circles. I don't know what it was doing. But I'm so glad when I come to the Bible, I don't have to use such terms. I don't say, well, the Bible's largely God's word. Or I can, I can usually trust it. That would be a weird way to handle scripture. There are those out there who are that way. Well, I, I pick and choose among it because I can't really trust all of it. No, this is the word of God. All scripture is God breathed. You can build your life on the truth of his word. Listen, in the Bible, you never see people treating the scriptures in a hesitant, tentative way. Again, the prophets, what did they say? Thus says the Lord, and they proclaimed the word of God. Or think about Paul's use of the Old Testament scriptures as he's being used to write New Testament scriptures. When he hearkens back to the Old Testament, he'll build rich theologies on the Old Testament scriptures, and he shows absolute confidence in the word of God. In fact, he'll build great theology on the reality that there was one original human being, Adam, a historical figure. This is not fiction. Paul's not uncertain about that. He knows that this is true. The word of God declares it, and he builds theology. Sin came to us through one. Righteousness is coming to us through another one, Jesus. Or how about Jesus's use of the scriptures? Jesus, our savior, shows us how you and I ought to look at the scriptures and there's no hesitancy in the life and the, the ministry of Jesus, how he handled the scripture. Didn't Jesus over and over again say, all these scriptures are being fulfilled in me, not a low view of scripture. When Jesus spoke of the Old Testament, he always affirmed it was true. For instance, Jesus spoke of Jonah as a true historical figure in Matthew 12, 40. Jesus affirmed the flood of Noah as a real event in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Jesus affirmed the account of how God fed his people with manna. He spoke of it and it's recorded in John 6, 49. So we're just affirming together that God has spoken. And he's spoken through his word. And his word is uniquely inspired. It is the inerrant, infallible word of God. We can bank on it. Psalm 19 
verse 7, speaks of the perfections of God's Word. It's what you would expect. If God speaks, it's going to be accurate. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Now listen to this. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned and in keeping them there is great reward. So yes, the word of God is true. And indeed, it's more valuable and more desirable to the disciple than gold itself. I bet your testimony is like mine. For me, I took up the Bible 37 years ago, and I've been reading it daily since then. And it was through the scriptures that I came to faith in Jesus, and I just stayed in that move. I'm going to keep reading the Bible. And here's the deal. I have never had regrets in 37 years of reading the Bible and by the power of the Spirit trying to align with the scriptures in my life. I've never had regrets in my life for following the wisdom of scripture. I've had plenty of regrets whenever I've stepped, out, stepped outside of the wisdom of Scripture and tried to do something other than what God said, but never a moment of regret for following the wisdom of Scripture. In 37 years also, I can say, I have never envied the world. I never thought, man, I really think they have it figured out. They seem so happy. Their home lives are working so well out there. It's really going great. And here I have, I just have the Bible. It's the opposite. I think, oh, I have this treasure. And it's its validity is shown over and over again as I follow it. There's joy in the Word of God that, that we long for everybody to have. Now, somebody might ask the question, well, how can the Bible be perfect and without error if human beings were involved in it? And the answer is we go back to the Holy Spirit. The, so, the Holy Spirit so superintended that process that even though he used mere humans, God made sure that what we have is exactly what he wanted. A great illustration of how that could work is this. Think about the life of Jesus. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a human, Mary, and Jesus indeed still perfect, even though Mary was involved in that. And so that likewise, our scriptures, the Holy Spirit inspired and ensured the inerrancy of the word. But all of us have probably heard this charge leveled against the Bible, that it has many contradictions but I would say not so fast. People are quick to say that, just to repeat it, they've never studied it themselves, but they'll just think, well, everybody knows that, right? The Bible's full of contradictions, but not everything that you see as a contradiction in life is a real contradiction. Let me illustrate that this way. Think about it, if 2,000 years from now, 2,000 years in the future, archeologists come to Glen Allen and they're digging around where this building used to be, and they come upon some of our documents and they pull them up, they're gonna think there, is, there are many contradictions in our church documents because they're gonna think we didn't even know where we were. So they're gonna find some of our documents that say, here we are in Richmond, Virginia. And that would be a true statement. We're in Richmond. We speak in general terms like that. We're in the Richmond area. It's, it's legitimate to say we're, we're here in Richmond. But then in other documents, we're a little more precise. And we say, here we are in Henrico County. And that's more, more technically true, but both are true statements, but they might be thinking these people don't even know where they are because they're 2,000 years in the future. They don't understand what we're living through right now. Then they're going to be further confounded when they hear us say, we're here in Glen Allen. These people are crazy. These documents, we can't, we can't build that. Somebody might even say, well, you're kind of in Laurel, whatever Laurel is, you know. 
And so uh, where are these people? And so it's easy for somebody far removed from something to say, aha, error. Listen, we've got to be careful. We look back 2,000 years at these scriptures, some things in the culture, we don't understand how they communicated at times. Don't be quick to say, I have found an error, but people are quick to do it. And this has been going on a long, long time. When I was a freshman in college, during a freshman history lecture, the professor teaching something then made this sweeping attack on the Bible and said, you know, in the Bible, of course, is full of contradictions. I'm 18 years old. I've been reading the Bible now for a couple of years at that point. My life's been saved and I'm scared to challenge a professor, but my heart's pounding in my chest. I raised my hand and I just said, for example, and the learned professor who just made the sweeping charge that the Bible's full of contradictions, let me quote the learned professor. She said, I'm quoting, um, uh, um again, um, well, it's just full of them. What a lazy, uninformed, biased charge lays, laid against the scripture. Just try to score easy points with college freshmen. Wayne Grudem speaks to this. He says, you know, any apparent contradiction that you might come upon, it's not new. You won't be the first to have seen that. These centuries have gone by and scholars have looked at these very points you might see for centuries. And here's what he says. He says, it should be stated that there are many evangelical Bible scholars today who will say that they do not presently know of any problem text for which there is no satisfactory solution. Then Grudem spoke for himself. He said, the present writer, for example, has during the last 20 years examined dozens of these, quote, problem texts that have been brought to his attention in the context of the inerrancy debate. And every one of those cases, upon close inspection of the text, a plausible solution has become evident. So what we're saying is this, you can be confident in the word of God. You can be confident in the integrity, the accuracy, and the truthfulness of the Bible that you have. You do know that this is an area of spiritual warfare. This is one of Satan's go-to moves when he deals with humans to try to get you to doubt the word of God. He did this at the very beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve. Remember, he tried to get them to doubt what God had said. Satan whispered to Eve, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? You hear that move? You, you sure? You sure God's right about that? And when Eve reinforced, yeah, we can eat from any tree, just not that one or or there'll be consequences, we will die. Satan did not let up. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. In other words, God's wrong. You got it wrong. You can't trust what he said. So listen, my prayer for us today is that we just nail it down. This is God's word. There is no reason to doubt it. It is unerring in our lives. And listen, because that's true, here's another truth. The Bible then is essential and authoritative over us. The Bible is completely true every word of it, God breathed. And therefore it's important, it's essential, it's authoritative. Paul says here, it's profitable. And he lists a number of ways why it's profitable. He says, for teaching. Listen, this is your source for doctrine. You don't look outside the Bible for what to believe. You go to the Bible and you believe what we're told here. So yes, God has given us general revelation through nature. We learn a lot about his power, his creativity, his love and his provision. Yes, but aren't you glad for special revelation when God did by his spirit speak through these men, it's recorded for us that we know, might know God. God is real for us. How we got here, we're told how he created us. God has told us in his word, what went wrong? Why is the world in such chaos? It goes back to that sin in the garden, what we call the fall recorded in Genesis three. How can we may, be made right with God? 
We go back to places like Isaiah 53, the atonement for our sins. We read the New Testament and read about the life of Jesus where he went to the cross for us and was raised from the dead. We learn about God's attributes from his word. This is profitable for us to know it and to teach it all about his holiness, all about his knowledge, his power. The word of God is teaching us this and we teach it to others. And that's why you'll hear us preaching from the Bible here. And in your life group, that's why it's a Bible-based fellowship and discipleship time because we cannot improve upon the Bible. Hebrews 4.12, I love this. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God's powerful. My words aren't. His words are powerful. You and I cannot improve upon his words. His word can do things that our words can't do. And have you noticed when you're reading the Bible, there's a sense in which the Bible's reading you. God's reading you. He's looking at your thoughts and intentions and he's correcting you. Notice this, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. This is why you and I don't look at the Bible like we look at a buffet. By the way, do you remember buffets when they used to have buffets? I miss a good Chinese buffet. I miss a good Indian buffet. Will they ever come back? COVID has really done a number on that. So I like a buffet. You like a buffet because you can get what you want and leave on there what you don't want. Some people approach the Bible that way. You know, I, I like the salvation parts of the Bible, but I'm not so into those morality teachings. I think, I think the Bible's wrong on that, but it's right about Jesus and salvation. Listen, we don't treat the Bible that way. What, what does the text tell us? 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is God breathed. We, we don't pick and choose and it's all profitable for our teaching. We, we build our theology from it. Not only that, it's profitable for reproof. This is an important function of the scripture, correcting wrong behavior. It means to show someone his sin and to summon him to repentance. Closely related to that is correction. The word of God corrects our doctrine, corrects our behavior when it's off. And it's profitable for teaching or for training rather, for discipling, not just head knowledge. Notice this, for training in righteousness, but with the goal that you and I would be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, so now we've talked about the scriptures. Now, how do we apply a message like this? How do we apply a text like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? Here's the first way I hope we'll apply this. First of all, we must believe that this is God's word in its entirety. It's a sign of your health spiritually. If you can say, I do affirm that this is God's word. I am confident in the scripture. Secondly, you must read it. There is a major breakdown if you say, I affirm the first point of application that I believe this is the word of God, but I never read it. That's bizarre. That's, that's weird. There's a major breakdown if, if you look at your life and I, I, I just don't make time for the Bible. Can you imagine, I, I thought about this week, standing before God in the judgment. As a saved person, Jesus has washed your sins away. I'm talking to Christians now. And you're standing before God and he's evaluating your life whether to say, well done, good and faithful servant, or what rewards he'll give, however he does that. So I'll say by grace, but there is that time of evaluation coming for us. And can you imagine standing there before him, God, I believed your word, but you didn't read it. It had a minimal part of your life. I was so busy. I didn't have time. Wait a minute. We, we know you watched thousands of hours of YouTube videos. You were an expert on all kinds of sporting events. You went to games when you were allowed to go to games. What about TikTok? How many hours you burned 
You binged watched how many seasons, but didn't have time for the scriptures. There's a breakdown there. That can't be true of us. Listen, do you believe this is God's word? Got to be reading it. Listen, so prioritize the role of the word of God in your life. Even if it's 10, 15 minutes a day, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to schedule it, set an alarm on your phone. I, I will meet with God. This is the most important moment. I'm going to meet with him. I'm going to take in this, these God-breathed words into my life so that I might align myself and I can talk to him about these things. Third, believe it, read it, handle it skillfully. In other words, make sure you, you handle the word like it's intended. So when you're reading, ask questions. So like, all right, what covenant am I in? I mean, I'm reading in the old covenant. I'm going to apply that differently than when I'm in the new covenant. What genre am I reading? Or how about this one? What was the author's, the original writer's original intent? What's, what's he communicating here? So we don't come to the Bible like it's an abstract painting. You know, what does it mean to me? You know, I know what he's saying there, but to me that means we don't do that. That's illegitimate interpretation of the Bible. What was Moses intending to write as the Spirit guided him? What was Paul intending to say there in the original context? So I got to know that so that I can rightly understand it and then apply it appropriately then in my life. Can I, can I recommend a resource to you? If you're thinking, I need some help with that. You know, a great resource would be the ESV Study Bible. Not any study Bible, but one solid like the ESV Study Bible. If you I just need a tool to help me rightly handle the Word of God. That's a great tool. A fourth way we apply this is this. We must apply the Bible in our lives. We need to read it and interpret correctly, handle it right, then apply it. Submit to the scriptures, obey it. Doesn't the scripture tell us to be doers of the word and not merely hearers only? The word of God should be shaping our beliefs and shaping our behavior. When we see ourselves out of alignment, we repent in alignment with what the scripture is telling us. This is what Jesus taught us. In Matthew 7, verse 24 and following, Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who's built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. We must apply it. And then this, we must stand on it and preach it. We must stand on the word of God and we must preach this word. And that's important for us to nail down because we know the culture and the times in which we live. Our culture demands that we not preach this word. This culture is audacious. They, they demand you don't believe the things in this book. And nevertheless, it's a futile demand that they make because we're disciples of Jesus Christ and we will not be ashamed of his word. And we won't back up and we won't teach what they teach. So we will not become false teachers, though they demand that we do. We will not become disobedient disciples, though the culture demands that we do. We will not be so unloving to tell a culture, you know what, you're right and God's wrong. We won't do that. We love them too much. Again, we won't be ashamed of the word of God. So catching our context here. So Paul is writing Timothy about this. He says that these are God-breathed words. What's the very next thing he tells Timothy? Now it takes us into chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 5. What do you do with a God-breathed book like this? For 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come 
when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn, turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So listen, we hold fast to this word. This word. We proclaim this word, even in a generation like ours. And can I tell you a verse that I look out most mornings in my prayer time? I look through a number of scriptures, think on them, pray about them. And Mark, Mark 8.38 is one of those verses that I think on. Because I'm keenly aware of the generation in which we live. And I'm keenly aware and feel the pressure of the culture to be silenced on the word of God. Especially on creation or marriage or gender. Like you're just not supposed to believe certain things in our aggressive culture, but Mark 8.38, the words of Jesus that I pray through daily and respond to, where he tells us the cost of discipleship included, he says this, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Do you hear that? Jesus calls his generation in the first century, he calls it an adulterous and sinful generation. And we live in a, in a generation, we could use the same terms, this is a sinful, adulterous generation. And what's Jesus say to do with his word? He says, you better not be ashamed of me and my word in such a generation, or I'll be ashamed of you when I come again. Boy, that steadies me. That still, that takes, it just makes it unequivocal. I know what I'm going to preach today, and I know what I'm going to preach tomorrow, and so every day... I read and reread Mark 8, 38, among other things, just to make sure my heart is prepared. Let's just keep going in this direction. So you and I must prioritize the approval of God over the approval of men. You and I must prioritize the fear of God over the fear of men. Listen, one day all the critics will be silenced. One day even this culture will lay in ash, and yet the word of God will stand. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God stands forever. And so are you understanding the treasure that you hold in your hands? What a treasure. It should cause you to tremble. Oh, I have the word of God. Are you consuming the word of God daily, systematically in your life? And have you responded to the central message of the Bible, which is the gospel? That, that God made you, he's holy, but you and I have sinned against him. The Bible says and we've estranged ourselves from him. We're separated from him because of our sin. But God still loved us and came for us. Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life in order to die a perfect sacrifice for your sins. And he was raised from the dead on the third day. And here's the promise of scripture. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe in him, you'll not perish, but you'll have everlasting life. This is the message of the Bible. It all points to Jesus and your need for him and your need to call on him, would you call on him even now? Let's pray together.